Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unknown Friends Podcast. This week you've tuned into Season 3, Episode 5, and we're in the middle of discussing our second trilogy of the season, N.D. Wilson's 100 Cupboards Trilogy. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my work as a playwright at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I hope you are already subscribed to the Unknown Friends podcast, and if you enjoy it enough that you're interested to hear more book reviews from me, be sure to check out Unknown Friends on Patreon. There you can become a supporter of the podcast, and for as little as $6 a month, you can access monthly bonus book reviews and more extra content. Thank you to all of you who already support the podcast as patrons, and I hope you all enjoyed last week's bonus book review of G.K. Chesterton's fantastic novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. I was delighted to get the chance to reread and review the book, and I hope you found the discussion to be interesting. And of course, thank you all listeners for tuning into today's episode. I'm honored that you're here, and I'm excited to continue our analysis of the 100 Cupboards trilogy. If you have not yet listened to my previous episode, in which I introduced book one and shared some overarching thoughts about the series as a whole, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode before continuing with this week's. Today we are pressing forward into book two of the trilogy, We will be talking about some new characters N.D. Wilson lets us meet in this second book, and the more complex storylines and deeper themes that he develops. So in book one of the 100 Cupboards, we met 12-year-old Henry York and his Kansas cousins, the Willis family, led by Uncle Frank and Aunt Dottie. Henry has grown up extremely sheltered, um, bubble-wrapped, N.D. Wilson describes it, and with the Willis family, he finally has a little elbow room, a little room to explore and ask questions and try hard things, which is exactly what he needs. He has previously been trained to be timid, and he needs and wants to learn courage. And then besides meeting his delightfully eccentric uncle and aunt and cousins, the other huge thing that began to change Henry's life in book one was his discovery of 99 cupboards in his bedroom wall, doors which all seem to lead to other worlds. And in the process of discovering these cupboard doors and how people can travel through them into other worlds, Henry inadvertently liberated an ancient evil, a witch named Nimeon, or Nemione, I've also heard it pronounced. I'm not certain which is correct. Henry and the Willises already had a very narrow escape from being killed by Nimeon in book one. I will let you read it to find out for yourself just how close they came and how they thwarted her first attempt to kill them. But while they dodged her for the time being, they did not destroy her. She lives on, in books two and three, in another world into which they sent her. And she left scars on the whole family 
from their first encounter, especially on Henry. And after her first small defeat, Nimeon wants more than ever to get revenge on Henry and ultimately annihilate him and his family. And that danger haunts Henry through the rest of the trilogy until he must finally face the witch and one or the other of them will not survive. Book two of the trilogy, then, does continue the conflict between Nimeon and our heroes, but Henry is not yet nearly strong enough to confront her directly. I would say book two is centrally about Henry's journey to learn who he is and what his place is in the world, and in fact, what world he even belongs to. Even fairly early in book one, it started to become clear that Henry's supposed parents, Phil and Ursula, the ones who don't let him drink soda and to give him a therapeutic teddy bear to take to boarding school, they are not his real parents. By the end of book one, Henry has no idea who his real parents are, but he has a pretty good idea that they aren't Phil and Ursula. And he's kind of glad, because Phil and Ursula are pretty terrible as stand-in parents. Now that he has had a taste of life without them, he would honestly give just about anything to avoid ever having to go back to them. So that's the main issue at stake as book two opens. For now, the witch Nimeon is out of sight and out of mind, although We know she's working on her own plans in the background. But the foremost question at the moment is, who is Henry York? And where does he belong? And this may sound like a weak premise for a book. Um, Perhaps you wouldn't expect it to generate much conflict or excitement or suspense, but I promise you it does. So in book two, two things happen right away that set Henry's journey into motion. First, he gets word that his pseudo-parents, Phil and Ursula, are going to come pick him up and take him away from Kansas in just two weeks. And that sickening news makes him more anxious than ever to find out now what his real past is and who his real family is so that maybe he can reunite with his true parents and thus avoid going back to Phil and Ursula. And then second, something shocking and inexplicable happens to Henry that he cannot ignore. He's just in the yard one day, and he sees a dandelion, and he sees the dandelion glow like fire, and then like nothing he can describe strands of flaming color, glorious, almost blinding him, and he reaches out and touches the dandelion, and then it's as if he was struck by lightning. He's literally knocked unconscious, and afterwards he finds that his hand where he touched the dandelion has a burn mark, almost like a brand. And what's worse, he finds after this experience that he can't see, He has been literally struck blind. Now, understandably, his uncle and aunt and cousins are very concerned, and they're at a loss. No one, not even Henry, really knows what happened, 
or what to do now, especially about his blindness. And then more bizarre things happen. Henry has been experiencing strange dreams for a long time, even in book one of the trilogy, and they continue in book two. But what's weird is they seem to be becoming more than just dreams. There is a reality to them, and Henry can even make choices in his dreams that actually affect what happens in the dreams. So for instance, he can walk out of a dream or he can sometimes communicate with the other people in his dream. And one person in particular enters Henry's dreams and frightens him. A man named Darius begins appearing in recurring dreams and talking with Henry, and we gradually learn that Darius is a powerful wizard who believes that Henry also has latent power. Darius says he wants to adopt Henry as his son, but Henry is not on board with this. Darius is creepy and pretty clearly evil, and Henry wants nothing to do with him. But, unfortunately, Darius is more powerful than Henry realizes. The wizard actually manages to travel across worlds through Henry's dreams. Um... I won't try to explain it all. It's kind of complicated, and I'm not even sure I fully understand how it all works. But the long and short of it is that Darius abducts Henry into a foreign world called Byzantium and attempts to conduct a sorcerous rite that, in theory, will bond Henry to himself and make Henry, in some sense, his son. But Henry escapes before Darius can quite finish the rite. Henry, however, is then lost in Byzantium, trying to find his way back into Kansas, and this whole time trying to figure out why Darius thinks he has some kind of magical powers, and whether this might be true. The dandelion encounter has something to do with it, but Henry doesn't understand yet. Now, meanwhile, the various members of the Willis family are having their own adventures while Henry is escaping from Darius. First of all, Henrietta, Henry's stubborn cousin who discovered the 100 Cupboards with him in Book 1, she has an irrepressible desire to explore the worlds of the cupboards, and she rashly starts doing this on her own. She soon finds herself in an unfamiliar world where she's very quickly captured by some unfriendly locals, and she's led far away from the magical cupboard doorway, which is her only way home. And on top of that, while she is lost in one world, and Henry is lost in another, Darius, once he realizes that Henry has run away from him, goes back to where he first found Henry to try to find him again. In other words, Darius comes to Kansas. And Darius is capable of doing dreadful, drastic things with his magic. He confronts Uncle Frank and Aunt Dottie and Henry's cousins, and 
without too many spoilers, let's just say that the whole Willis family ends up lost between worlds as well, with no idea where they are and no idea where Henry and Henrietta are. So what you end up getting is three storylines that you have to follow, Henry's, Henrietta's, and the rest of the families. And so it is, I admit, kind of a lot to keep track of, but it it certainly keeps things interesting. And Andy Wilson does a good job balancing the three storylines and keeping us up to date where all three are. And everything I've shared so far only takes up about the first half of book two. Eventually, the three separate storylines have to find each other, and at the same time, Henry is trying to find his true home and family. And then ultimately, once Henry does get reunited with his aunt and uncle and cousins, and perhaps with his long-lost parents as well, they all must confront Darius in a pretty monumental final battle. Because as soon as Henry finally finds his true home, that very place is endangered. Darius, we learn, is a servant of the witch Nimeon, and the two of them are determined to destroy Henry and his whole family. So that is an overall outline of what happens in book two. Now, of course, so many adventures happen and characters get introduced that I sadly don't have time to discuss in any detail. Um, But there's tons of magic and portals between worlds and within worlds. There's fairies, probably unlike any fairies you've read about before, and wizards and spells of all kinds. There's also um, baseball and shotguns, and plenty of other very real-world, very American elements that N.D. Wilson weaves through his fantasy story. And some awesome new characters join the cast. Uh, Another Frank, ironically, Wilson seems to enjoy doubling up on characters' names. So we already had both Henry and Henrietta, Now we have Uncle Frank, as well as a new arrival, Franklin Fat Fairy, who is a wonderful addition. I feel like he's a cross between something from Lewis, Tolkien, and the Chronicles of Prydain, which I discussed last year. Just a very fun character. And another very cool new character is a man named Caleb, whom Henrietta meets in her adventures. She's not sure about him at first because he's somewhat mysterious, but he turns out to be thoroughly on the good side. He is a warrior, an archer, and both as valiant and as wise as any of the heroes from The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia. Definitely a character in the tradition of Lewis and Tolkien. And this is one of my favorite things about Wilson's fantasy. Uh, we, we touched on this in the last episode. Andy Wilson does not do the normal modern fantasy thing where the kids are cool and the adults are stupid. He does the older fantasy thing where the kids are kind of stupid and have to learn the hard way to be as wise and courageous and all around awesome as the adults. 
He just has really cool adults in the 100 Cupboards trilogy. Uncle Frank and Aunt Dottie, uh, Caleb, Henry's true parents. They're, they're amazing. I really love that about this series. So we're going to talk more about the deeper themes of the 100 Cupboards in our third and final episode discussing the trilogy, but I want to introduce just a few concepts today to get us started. Generally speaking, in book two, we see a lot of growth already happening in our hero, Henry. In book one, he was kind of weak. He was insecure and ignorant about a lot of things. And his early adventures with the cupboards shook him up a bit and pushed him, challenged him in a good way. So in book two, he's already a little braver than he was at the beginning of the trilogy. And the more scary and difficult things he encounters, the stronger he gets. One of the things I appreciate about the world N.D. Wilson has created is that good and evil are extremely distinct here. The villains are very villainous, and opposing them we have some very noble good guys. And so Henry never doubts which side he wants to be on. His temptation is never to join the bad guys, but his temptation is just to give up fighting them. And yet he knows he can't give up. So at every juncture, he just has to choose to keep going, to not despair, to not just sit down and let the bad guys have their way. He's continually pushed to hold out longer and longer as the villains try harder and harder to outlast his strength. And remarkably, his strength grows through it all. You might think he would get weaker the longer he's forced to endure, but that's the beautiful surprise. The longer he endures, the greater becomes his power of endurance. Each test is just giving him practice, training him and increasing his courage and stamina. In many ways, the big thing that Henry learns in book two is how to be stubborn against evil. Yes, stubbornness can be bad when it's in the wrong place, but I don't know that there's anything better than stubbornness when you're up against evil. So Henry develops an essential capacity for stubbornness when faced with even the most intimidating enemies. Uh, A side character at one point gives Henry this crucial little piece of advice. I'll read it to you. Sometimes standing against evil is more important than defeating it. The greatest heroes stand because it is right to do so, not because they believe they will walk away with their lives. Such selfless courage is a victory in itself. So throughout book two, we see Henry learn simply to stand firm, which, though it may be simple, is rarely easy. So Henry matures considerably in book two. And it's amazing, it's exciting to see this boy who had nearly been smothered by his overprotective adoptive parents 
truly begin to thrive and harden into a young man capable of bravery and responsibility. And with all this, I think I think Andy Wilson ultimately hopes to give us a picture of true maturity, a picture of how life is best lived. To put his vision very simply, it's that life is best lived for others. But saying that doesn't convey the depth of his vision. It's it's not some self-effacing, empty, exhausting life that he envisions. He absolutely believes in living life to the hilt, to the fullest, spending every cent of life on others. The character Caleb that I mentioned is speaking to Henrietta at one point in book two, and he tells her, your life is your own, your glory is your glory, but you will lose it if you keep it for yourself. Grasp it for the sake of others. What might you do with it? Andy Wilson recognizes that you must grasp life for the sake of others. I think it's unfortunately easy when we talk about living for others to think that somehow means we're just kind of passive and we don't get to do anything with our lives. But no, the whole point is that the active, intentional, energetic work of our lives should be to live every moment to the fullest for others. Andy Wilson understands this. And through his stories, he makes this kind of life appealing. Henry grows into this sort of a person, as do other characters. Uh, They are or they become the kind of people who make things happen for others, who relish life for the sake of others. That's inspiring. Wilson makes it very clear that a good life is not hoarded, it's spent. One other just short quotation that stood out to me near the end of book two, um, kind of just a comment made in passing, but it perfectly demonstrates Wilson's worldview. Um, Henry still has room to mature further in book three, but he's come a very long way, and the narrator is just describing his new life that he's come into at the end of book two, full of hard work and good meals and friendship and family, and he says that every night Henry enjoys the sleep of a body and mind used like tools and not like treasures. That is what N.D. Wilson wants for all of us. He wants us to treat our bodies and our minds not like treasures to be preserved, but like tools to be put to use for the good of everyone around us. So, as I hope you can see, Wilson has truths to share in these stories that we need to hear. The, the 100 Cupboards trilogy is not just a romp through magical worlds. It's not just a kid's story. It is rooted in the tradition of time-tested Christian fantasy, like The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia, where true heroes pour themselves out for others, 
and refuse to yield for a moment to the forces of evil. These books are worth reading. And I am excited to spend one more episode on N.D. Wilson before we have to say goodbye for now to the 100 Cupboards. So be sure to come back in two weeks for our concluding discussion of this trilogy. We will be talking next episode mainly about book three in the series titled The Chestnut King. Thank you for listening today, and remember to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and I am so grateful to each one of you for listening to my book reviews. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you next time.